The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined by Ed Condon, who is the editor of The Pillar, which is a very interesting Catholic publication. And we're going to be talking about Joe Biden, President Joe Biden's Catholicism. Ed, Joe Biden is the second Catholic president, and Catholicism plays an important part of his life, as he tells it. He is a practicing Catholic. Let's start by asking, how do Catholics feel about Joe Biden? How does the Catholic demographic of America think about him? Does it vote for him? Does it support him? Does Catholicism play a part in the fact that they vote for him or not? I I think it'd be fair to say that how American Catholics react to Joe Biden's Catholicism is pretty broadly reflective of how Joe Biden treats his own Catholicism, which is they break pretty evenly. Um, Half of American Catholics, I think, more or less would say that Joe Biden is no Catholic at all, at least in terms of how he how his faith informs or doesn't inform his political campaigns and platforms. On the other half, think that he's, you know, an outstanding and representative member of their flock. I think Joe Biden is really very emblematic of a wider trend in American Catholicism, which has emerged in the last couple of decades, in which I'd say a sizable proportion, if not a majority of American Catholics, tend to view their faith through the prism of their politics rather than the other way around. Mm. And it's very much connected to Joe Biden's sense of his Irishness, isn't it? And that is something that a lot of Irish Americans, they identify as Catholics, whether or not they are practicing Catholics or not. It ties into the, the, two, the two things are the same in some ways. Absolutely. I think the idea of a cultural identity is very important to, to how Biden presents himself, how he, how he appears on the campaign trail when he when he does choose to appear on the campaign trail, um, but but also just sort of how American Catholicism lives, sort of at a day to day ground level. That you know, it's it's part of a social fabric as much as about religious practice in a lot of places. That the experience of American Catholicism is tied in many ways to in and certainly in many places to a particular immigrant community or, or period of time. You get this very much in New York or Chicago or Boston with the sort of Irish and German and Polish communities. Um, that move there. And in other parts of the country, for example, in the South, to be a Catholic is, you know, is is to be definitely an outsider. And at different times in history, it's been, you know, to be a sort of marked group from from sort of other organizations like the KKK and things like that. That, mm. you know, to be to be a Catholic um, in American culture has for a long time um, was considered to be not properly American. And so the idea of an American Catholic president, whether it was um, Al Smith when he was the first nominee from a major political party to be Catholic or JFK or indeed Joe Biden, is it seen as a kind of cultural acceptance for Catholicism in America? Yes. Smith and Kennedy both, I think, gave speeches reassuring the public that their Catholicism would not mean that they were part of some dangerous Fenian takeover. 
But of course, Biden's never had to do that. And if anything, his Catholicism within the Democratic Party is an, is an asset, isn't it? Biden's Catholicism is an asset within the Democratic Party in the way in which he sort of came to his presidential run ahead of the last election with it predefined. You know, JFK did have to give a sort of speech saying, I promise I won't you know, sort of hand over the nuclear launch codes to the Pope or anything like that. <laughs> Biden didn't have to do that. But Biden did have to, in one of the primary debates, basically take the pledge and renounce his previous sort of squishy position on abortion, for example, mm. uh, under heavy pressure from Kamala Harris, of all people, and, and sort of say, yes, I, I accept that I in the past said that I thought Roe v. Wade went too far or that, you know, abortion should be legal, but the government shouldn't have to fund it or taxpayers shouldn't have to help fund it through their taxes or something like that. And and now I see I was entirely wrong and I'm in favor of total, you know, abortion maximalism as defined by, you know, whoever's defining these things these days, whether it's Planned Parenthood or his vice president or whoever else. Well, I wanted to ask you about abortion because that is quite an irony, is it not, that the second Catholic president of America is going to campaign to re be re-elected in 2024. He did talk about abortion a bit in 2020, but this campaign, because the Democrats know this is a winner for them electorally now, Biden is going to be a vocal supporter of abortion up till birth. And I wonder, some Catholics think that the Catholic Church should speak out against him on this and say it is not in line with your Catholicism to support abortion and particularly not to be such a vociferous supporter of abortion up till birth. Do you think the Catholic Church will do anything? And do you think this will be a salient issue in 2024? I, I think the Catholic Church will probably continue to do things about this. I mean, the, the concern about Biden's very public Catholicism and the way he has referenced it in his political life, you know, he has a habit of taking his rosary beads out and crossing himself when he talks about Republicans during speeches and things like that. <laughs> this has been a point of concern for Catholic bishops in the US from when he was just the candidate rather than before he was elected. And it was such a concern that the American Catholic bishops sort of formed a special strategy committee after the election and before his inauguration to sort of say, well, what do we what do we do as a church to address the idea that the most famous Catholic in the country, possibly the world, at least in terms of Catholic laymen, is vocally opposed to church teaching on some fundamental moral issues? And, you know, they ended up putting out and then sort of pulling back and then putting out again a statement of concern on Inauguration Day for Biden. So they've been divided amongst themselves since then. I think it's fair to say the American Catholic bishops, some thinking that they need to you know, be pretty strident and no holds barred and say, look, the church doesn't have the right to tell the government what to do or what policies to pursue, but it does have the right and the duty to you know, correct one of its members on issues of faith and morals. And you know, being president doesn't sort of absolve the church of its moral responsibility for Biden's soul in that sense. So they've been sort of locked in an internal debate, sometimes a very acrimonious personal and personal debate since mm. Biden was elected about that. And I think they'll continue to do so. But on the other hand, you've seen Biden, I think, whether this is coincidence or judgment, I, I couldn't say, but you've seen him, I think, recognize this this tension and want to pivot away from it a bit. I mean, his first campaign for pre the presidency, or I should say his first successful campaign for the presidency, his videos were sort of rife with Catholic imagery, you know, Joe Biden kissing nuns and shaking hands with popes and wandering around the Vatican and talking about how his faith has shaped who he is and everything like that. That was sort of his main campaign video language the last time around. But this time, you know, as you say, his platform has has shifted a bit, and his his support for sort of you know very pro hardline progressive causes has increased. 
And you saw none of that Catholic imagery in the, in his sort of re-election launch video. Mm. But his language remains very Catholic in Catholic informed, I'd say, because you know he says Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. He has little Irishisms that he likes to say. Yeah. And then the other day he was talking about the trans issue in Florida, I think, and he said that I think Ron DeSantis's position on the trans issue was close to sin, as my mother would say. Which was very odd for a lot of Catholics listening, because of course his position is close to sin, is sin, yes. as as uh, Catholics understand it. And to hear a, a Catholic president say that their position was sinful was was quite a strange thing. Yeah, and and I think the way Biden often brings his Catholicism into his politics or sort of inflects his political statements with Catholic language and themes is you sort of have to apply the Sir Humphrey law of inverse relevance. The more Catholic Joe Biden is sounding, the less his Catholicism actually has anything to do with what <laughs> he's talking about. You know, you, you mentioned that it's all bound up in his sort of, you know, pseudo Irish identity as well. And I think that plays a role that, you know, when, when Biden is talking about sin and when Biden is talking about, you know, um, sort of you know, crossing himself when talking about Republicans and that sort of thing, he's he's using he's using religious imagery in Catholic sort of you know language, but it's a political statement he's making. It doesn't have anything to do with Catholicism per se. I mean, it's but it's bound up in the same sort of you know cultural identity of sort of Irish Catholicism, whatever that means for a man who you know hasn't had an Irish a direct Irish ancestor in three or four generations or whatever it is mm. actually has a few English ones in between as far as I'm aware yeah he's pretty shy um, about the English side yeah yeah surprisingly but yeah I think you know Biden's the way Biden deploys rosary beads on campaign stops and things like that is I I, I think that's about as Catholic as you know green dyed beer is Irish it's it's a uniquely sort of American political conception of you know, what's really a pastiche of something that they think has, you know, cultural currency and sort of, you know, it, it's it's mood music rather than actual hard lyrics. I hear what you're saying, but it's probably fair not to be too cynical because I've read his memoirs and I think he's obviously had a lot of suffering in his life. Hmm. And obviously religion has been a, a very important part of his the way he copes with with that suffering. That's, that's probably a charitable thing to say, is it not? Oh, I think so. I, I don't think, I, I wouldn't want to, class Joe Biden is a complete charlatan yeah. and, you know, a, a fake Catholic by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. I think his, you know, again, the way the interplay between his his religion and his politics, I think is, again, reflective of how it is for many, if not most American Catholics at this point, that you know, there's, it, it's a very permeable membrane between where you get your dogma from, whether it's from your political party or from your church. Uh, but on the other hand, I think Biden has gotten very good at cabining and, and compartmentalizing sort of what is the what is the practice of his faith that really is personal to him and helps him in the things, as you say, you know, overcoming personal tragedy and loss within his own family and things like that. And then he seems to have a very firm wall between that and when Catholicism doesn't seem to inform his political platform where it seems he seems to push it away. And I think that's curious. And and I also think you have to account for sort of the direction of travel, that the closer, the higher Biden has risen sort of in the national political setup and in the Democratic Party, the more of Catholic teaching he has sort of shed his excess baggage along the way. Mm. The the statements of Senator Joe Biden on issues like abortion, for example, would be unrecognizable mm. as coming from the same politician that is now President Joe Biden. And I mean, it's not, and you know, it would be wrong to think that sort of the litmus test of um, American Catholicism in politics is just abortion. It's by no means the only issue. He makes some very good 
statements and sounds a much more holistically Catholic note when he talks about things like immigration and stuff like that. But then on the other hand, he's been a pretty vocal advocate for the application and use of the death penalty at the federal level, which is something the Catholic bishops are equally opposed to. Well, then, to be fair and less charitable, the obvious conclusion is he say he says whatever suits him at the time in terms of his political career. Uh, that's one interpretation. I wonder if, you know, an uncharitable interpretation would be that he's he's become increasingly comfortable offering aspects of church teaching as a sort of offering to the political gods as he ascends the ladder. Mm. I, I don't have a window into his soul. It's possible that he has genuinely somehow decided that political strategists are a more authentic oracle of um, divine morality than than his church. I, that may be the case. I, I certainly know people who probably think that. But I mean, he's a bit of a mystery of a man. And, and of course, it, it doesn't help that his, you know, his public statements have become a little more erratic and a little more self-contradictory as the years have gone on. And so, you know, you you also, I think for a lot of American Catholics watching Biden, there's there's the charitable impulse to say, oh, well, he is, you know, he is old Uncle Joe. You, you're never quite sure what he's saying or what he really means. Mm. Uh, let's focus a bit more on the abortion issue, because it is going to be very important in 2024. And it's going to be important because of Dobbs, the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe, Roe v. Wade, and the, the federal right to an abortion. This has, in a just strategic sense, and in the short term, perhaps, it's backfired. For, am I right in saying it's backfired for the pro-life movement in that now pro-abortion people are motivated to vote in a way they never were, and we may see some states passing extremely pro-abortion measures to, to guarantee abortion. So the public mood has, has swung against the pro-life cause. I think that's true in part and in places. It's true that long before we had the Dobbs decision, you had states like New York passing extreme abortion, extremely maximalist abortion laws at the state level. And now you've begun to see other states sort of having the latitude to go the opposite way. Uh, abortion isn't nearly the kind of binary issue for either American Catholics at a at a sort of level of just political polling, or, or the American electorate at large, as, as it often is seen, you know, the the actual majoritarian feeling in the country is actually that Roe v. Wade did go too far. Most people don't know to articulate it that way because they only understand Roe v. Wade through the sort of prism of media coverage, which says, you know, well, if you don't have Roe v. Wade, you only have a total abortion ban. And, and most people in the country wouldn't subscribe to that binary. They think that there is, you know, what they would consider to be reasonable limits. And, and I think that the, the the Catholic bishops in this country have done a good job. Some pro-life movement organizations have done a better or worse job at this, of waging an information campaign to go alongside the Dobbs decision. And, you know, thanks to the Supreme Court leak, no one can say they didn't see this coming. But if you do things like, for example, you see what are considered radically pro-life or anti-abortion bills in some states of banning abortion at six to eight weeks, so-called heartbeat bills, that they ban abortion at the point at which you can detect a fetal heartbeat. You know, you've actually got polling from, from credible sources like Rasmussen and stuff that say, if you ask your average American voter, do you support a ban on abortion at six to eight weeks, the you know, vast majority of them say no. And then they say, okay, well, would you support a ban on abortion when a fetal heartbeat can be detected? The vast majority would say yes. And then if you sort of put all the cards on the table and say, well, you can detect a fetal heartbeat at six to eight weeks, what do you think now? You actually end up getting closer to a slim majority of people who say, well, actually, I would be in favor of that. So 
the the repeal of Dobbs, or sorry, the the Dobbs decision, the repeal of Roe v. Wade, I think has laid bare who's ready for the post Roe world better, and who's ready to have a real conversation about abortion that begins to make the political landscape in the United States better reflective of actually where the people are. But I mean, you know, the uh, American democracy is shockingly bad at producing outcomes that reflect what people actually want. I mean, I think it's 60% of Americans don't want to see Joe Biden as the next president and something like 70% don't want to see Donald Trump as the next president. And we're pretty likely to see both of them as the candidates for the next election at this point. So, you know, what people want and what they're going to get is, is never the same thing. Doesn't this put Christians in a, it presents Christians with a dilemma because similar to you have in Britain, pro-life Catholics, pro-life Christians, pro-life people have a intense debate and divisions between them about 24 weeks and whether the right thing to do is to campaign to reduce 24 weeks as a time limit and therefore that would stop abortions. Uh, some of them, or, or whether that is in effect to get in bed with a policy that you think is morally fundamentally wrong. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the problem for pro life campaigners in in every country. I think is to say, you know, do you want to make the perfect the enemy of the good? Do we want to just see incremental change as much as we can, or do you want to sort of you know make the hail mary play, so to speak? that you got with the overturning of Roe and and try and be able to ban abortion completely all at once. Uh, I go back and forth I go back and forth on this myself. I you know what what presumably everyone in um in the pro-life cause would like to see certainly myself included is a situation in which abortion is morally unthinkable as much as practically illegal. And to see any any limits or or bans on abortion have staying power because I don't know that you know there's much to be gained in the long term by ha- by turning abortion into well it's it's legal this election cycle it's illegal the next election cycle and so on that achieving a sort of lasting kind of progress is going to require changing hearts and minds to you know to use a trite phrase mm. but again all the information we have all the polling we have suggests that the hearts and minds are there to be changed yes if you can actually have a conversation about it and it presents a further dilemma now for Republican candidates who now have to spell out their position on abortion in a much more clear way than perhaps they did in the past. Oh, I think the the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I, I think I, I would argue it's been, broadly speaking, good for the pro-life movement. I think it's been disastrous for the Republican Party. Um, and and I, I'm able and I do draw a very, very clear distinction between those two. Yes. But the Republican Party has for years, I think, generations even, traded on the idea of, well, we can take the pro-life vote for granted because we will, quote unquote, give them judges. Uh, But the expectation is, well, those judges will never actually do anything and we can keep going back to the well time after time and we don't actually have to think too hard about what we really want or or think about abortion. And that is changing now. I mean, it's one of the things that's been most amusing to see is, you know, sort of members of the professional pro-life cabal in Washington, D.C. And it is a a very large and well-funded sort of lobbying wing in Washington. Uh, is the way they've sort of corporately vault faced on Donald Trump in the last few weeks. You yeah. know, when he was in office, he was he was paraded around practically on a sedan chair and feted as the most pro life president in history, which I think is debatable to say the least. And now that he's come out for a sort of more pragmatic approach to abortion bans, which you know, again, I I don't agree with them, but to Donald Trump's political 
credit, uh, do represent closer to where most American voters are on the issue. They've decided that you know he's he's just not good enough and he's not properly pro-life, which you know perhaps anyone could have seen coming. But but the didn't. reason they've turned on him is because he said, "I think this matter is properly settled by the states." Yes. Then taken against that, the pro-life people have to recognise that they've wanted Roe v. Wade to be overturned for goodness knows how long. And he did it. He put the judges there. And so, in a way, whatever his own, you know, failings, he is the most pro-life president. He is. Well, I do. Well, I would. He's the most um, effective anti-Roe v. Wade president there has ever been. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't take such a narrow view of the term pro-life as to simply mean what can you do about or against abortion. That, you mm. know, again, Donald Trump was the one who ended the moratorium on federal executions and, you know, was switching off inmates with with a sort of gay abandon at times and i i wouldn't call that pro-life by any stretch of the imagination i think his humanitarian record on on issues like immigration things were not what i would describe as pro-life so so i think there's there's a wider application of the term to consider there but it's true donald trump did enter into what i thought at the time was a was an obviously transactional relationship with the pro-life movement but unfortunately for them i think a lot of them got religion somewhere along the way about Donald <laughs> Trump and have been somewhat disappointed to discover that, no, he's he's just a politician who promised you one thing, gave it to you in exchange for your votes, and now he doesn't either need you anymore or has decided that there's a, a, a better constituency to be appealed to. Yes. And uh, speaking of people appealing to constituencies, Ron DeSantis, who is probably going to be Trump's rival for the Republican nomination, has recently sa- signed this I realise we've got away from Joe Biden, which is meant to be the point, but this is very interesting, I think, has recently signed this six-week abortion ban, uh, ban on abortions after six-week bill in Florida. And so now pro-life Christians, uh, anti-abortion Christians, let's be precise about the terms, they're turning towards him because they're disappointed in Trump. Um, How significant do you think that will be? uh, I I don't know that it will be significant enough to get DeSantis the Republican nomination, at this point, I mean, he hasn't even declared, and um, he sort of has developed a weird facial tick and a maniacal laugh if you ask him if he's going to run, which I find somewhat unsettling in someone who wants to lead the country. But I mean, I think, again, Ron DeSantis and the bill he signed in Florida is a perfect encapsulation of, you know, sort of giving red meat to a constituency with this abortion ban, but a sort of true believer in the pro-life cause would, I would hope, accompany that with saying, look, this is the why. It's not just a question of abortion bad, we're going to ban it. That's fine as a sort of moral black and white presentation. But if you want to accompany it, as other states have done, with with a sort of ground level persuasion campaign that says, this is when you can detect a fetal heartbeat. This is what the science says about when life begins. You know, Having a sort of grounding of that in evidence and in persuasive literature that can bring people along with it, I think would be a lot more effective at giving it staying power and and also shifting the conversation and not making, you know, what is good for DeSantis with this constituency in this state, but makes it, you know, much harder for him to get elected in other parts of the country if he does want to run for president. I think that's something mm. to keep an eye on. And again, Ron DeSantis might be the new anti-abortion darling. Um, on the political stage. But again, if we want to talk about the, the label pro-life, he's also a guy who seems to think it's just good fun to put migrants on buses and ship them off to different parts of the country as a sort of gag on democratic governors. And, you know, I, I call that pretty inhuman. Yes. Well, let's go back to the Democrats now, because 
the Democratic Party is now the party of abortion, and it's not just the party of abortion, it's the party of abortion up till birth, which, as discussed, is not something that most Americans would agree with if you ask them properly. It's not something actually most Democrats agree most with. Most Democrats you, agree with, exactly. If you, if you poll Democrats, Democrat Party members in New York about the New York abortion law that Governor Cuomo brought in a few years ago, three years ago now, I think, most of them don't like it. They don't like it on the terms of it. They think the idea that you can have abortion up to and including the moment of birth is is barbaric. Mm. But, you know, again, you have this this chasm between how people actually view abortion and what they are willing to tolerate and what they think is a quote unquote reasonable accommodation and then what the the political parties are putting an offer. And what you're seeing is this maximalism on both sides. And you know, while I might favor one wing of the maximalist opinion as a moral good, I don't think the political calculus for either party is necessarily a winning strategy. But the Democrats do have, if you like, the soft power in this debate, because when Dobbs was overturned, you know, every pop star said this is such a dark day to be a woman, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of women and a lot of young people were very persuaded and motivated about that. And I don't want to say they haven't thought about the issue, because I think that's probably a good thing to say. But but certainly the cultural pressure to be pro-abortion is quite strong. Oh, it's overwhelming, I would say. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I think it's interesting. If you if you ever see one of the pro the the sort of pro-life marches or the pro-abortion marches which we we used to get a lot of in in dc in in the years before dobbs the actual demographic difference between the two crowds is pretty stark the the pro-life movement at least as represented by the people who turn out to march tend to be pretty young as a body i you know i i don't have exact figures but i mean my experience going to look at it as a journalist was that it was pretty visibly, it was certainly visibly under 40, and in many cases, pretty visibly under 30, that, you know, this is, the pro-life movement in the United States is not a, is not an old person's movement. It's a young person's movement. And I think you're right that there is a cultural, there's almost a unanimous cultural pressure in favor of abortion and to be pro-choice and all of that. But I think one of the interesting sort of unexpected things we've seen in the last few years, you know, we've 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 acclimatized a generation to Twitter and TikTok and sort of a completely fractured sense of pop culture. I don't know that that broader cultural weight, the sort of, you know, celeb endorsement carries the same kind of currency that it would have done 10 years ago. And perhaps that's because this has been going on now for five decades and yeah. pro-life, anti-abortion people, tend to breed more than uh, abortion they people do. do. Uh, it's true. You, you, you don't tend to get as many poppies in pushchairs at pro-life rallies as you do um, at pro-abortion rallies. <laughs> and going back to Joe Biden, a lot of his appeal as a candidate, not just on abortion and not just to do with Catholicism, was that he was seen as moderate. And Republicans would say, or Trumpists would say, particularly, that he is a he will be a Trojan horse for the radical left. And I think a lot of people in America looked at Joe Biden and thought, no, come on, he's a good old boy. He's a sensible centrist. He likes working across the aisle and all that. Am I right in thinking that a lot of people have now looked at his administration's record and thought, actually, perhaps he is something of a Trojan horse for quite a radical agenda on many issues that the Democratic Party wants to push. I, I think that's possible. That's not an unreasonable inference to make. I, I think coming into a second presidential campaign, Joe Biden, I think the real risk and the way that a lot of people will be evaluating him is not, you know, is he saying one thing and planning to do another, but simply 
well, let's let's take the best possible, most charitable read of Joe Biden and say he is a centrist. He proclaims himself to be a moderate. He says he's a good old fashioned Rust Belt Democrat, Irish Catholic, you know, um, working men's club sort of guy. Let, let's assume all of that is genuine. Do we really think an 82 year old president is going to make it to the end of a four year term? So uh, I don't know that it's a question of, you know, is Biden speaking out of two sides of his face on this, but simply a question of, are you really going to elect Joe Biden and expect him to see out his term? And if not, and the actuary tables would suggest he's not going to, then you're going to get President Kamala Harris. And that's very much a horse of a different color. Mm-hmm. You know, her record as a, as a senator in the Judiciary Committee meetings, he, she would grill judicial nominations, not just over, you know, abortion and things like that. But I, there was one occasion where a prospective judge who, who was a Catholic, she quizzed him pretty hard about his membership of the Knights of Columbus, yeah. which, you know, is a sort of parish level men's charity that, you know, run pancake breakfasts for poor houses and, you know, run soup kitchens and winter coat drives and things like that. And she was branding that a sort of radical, patriarchal, subversive institution and, you know, a sort of quasi-extremist organization. And that's who's standing behind Joe Biden, quite literally in his in his sort of relaunch campaign video, with her arm on his shoulder and saying, you know, I'm I'm right behind him. That's, yes. you know, that's what's coming. And, and putting an end to some speculation, it seems that he would drop Kamala Harris because of her unpopularity and pick someone else who, who would be a more attractive proposition to most Americans. I, I think there, there are, I think almost anyone would be a more attractive proposition for most Americans, including most Democrats than, yeah. than Kamala <laughs> Harris. I, I just don't know that Joe Biden has the, has the political fight left in him to deal with what an angry Kamala Harris who'd been dropped from the ticket would, um, would come after him with. Well, let's just go back quickly um, to 2016 and Hillary Clinton choosing Tim Kaine as her vice president because he's a, he was a Catholic. I mean, he is a Catholic. And still is, yeah. Still is. And um, that was seen as an attempt to sort of lock up this working-class Democratic Catholic vote. And then if you have Biden, who, as you say, the actuary tables would suggest he might not make it, probably won't make it, a lot of working-class Catholics are going to be thinking about that and they will probably be thinking about Kamala Harris. They will. But I mean, again, I think the problem is American Catholics, uh, as, a, as a sort of voting group, don't think as American Catholics. There's no there's no identifiable block that you can find through any polling that says, well, this is where American Catholics go. They, they simply don't think or act or vote like that. Mm. You know, as a Catholic, I'd love it if a, if a sort of morally credible alternative candidate could emerge that, you know, was was equally in line with the moral vision of Catholic teaching on the death penalty and immigration and abortion and all of those things. But but such a person just doesn't exist. And the reality is most American Catholics have long since made their peace with being tribally partisan. That, we, you know, they're they're Democrats or they're Republicans first and they're Catholics second. And that's gonna be how they vote. Well you say that and and I, I think that's right, but it's still true, is it not, that the Catholic vote taken as a whole tends to decide the presidency? Uh, um, did it twenty twenty? <laughs> yes, but that's that that that's one of those tricks, you know, where you can you can make statistics say anything you want depending on how you ask the question of it. Yes, if you if you look at the Catholic population of the United States, you could say that that represents a block as big as or bigger than you know what is needed to swing any given presidential election. But I think for all of the good it will do you to try and pitch to them, you might as well try and appeal to people with brown eyes. You know, this is this is just not a part of their identity that tends to feature in their voting in large numbers. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't a sizable number, possibly in the low millions of Catholics, certainly in the hundreds of thousands of Catholics who who vote based on their 
faith first and say, you know, yes, there are, you know, there are um, reasonable calculations around moral principles that you can make on things like taxation and wealth redistribution and, and free markets and things like that. And that's all sort of a matter of prudential judgment. But on baseline moral issues, the right to life, things like that, you have to you have to pursue a sort of absolutist test when evaluating your options. There are Catholics who do that, but they definitely don't swing elections in the United States. Yeah, I think that that's a very fair point. Uh, Ed, finally, you don't think Joe Biden will be bringing out the rosary beads in 2024? I'm sure he will. He can't stop himself. It's too much of an ingrained part of his personality. But I think you'll be seeing a lot fewer popes and nuns in his campaign videos this time around. Yeah, more ice cream, less fewer nuns. Yeah. Yeah. Ed Condon, thank you so much for coming on to Americano. It was very interesting talking to you. And um, I hope we'll get you on again. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America. <laughs>